Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features J.A. Jantz at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Mystery phenom J.A. Jantz is the mind behind not one, but three blockbuster series. Her corpus, stretching back to 1985, includes an impressive 60 novels to date. Jantz's popular and compelling protagonists include retired Seattle police detective J.P. Beaumont, Arizona Sheriff Joanna Brady, and news anchor turned sleuth Allie Reynolds. Among other high honors, two books in the Beaumont series, Without Due Process in 1992 and Failure to Appear 1993, have won Jantz the prestigious American Mystery Award. Her latest is Clawback, the 13th installment in the Allie Reynolds series. In her most controversial case to date, Reynolds is determined to solve the murder of a man whose Ponzi scheme bankrupted hundreds of people, a plight that hits all too close to home for her. Clawback debuted in March 2016. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am happy to be here. I was, I was born in Watertown, South Dakota, so this is close to home. And uh, I think one of the things that sets my books apart is my Midwest roots showing in my stories. What I like to do at events like this is give you a little of my background so that you have some idea of who the person is who's putting the words on the pages. Because I think that tells you whether or not you can give any credence to the words on the pages. So I was born in Watertown. My father was from Marvin. My mother was from Summit, 10 miles away, Sumit as Grandpa Anderson called it. In 1935, my father came to Summit courting my mother's younger sister, Toots. Grandpa Anderson liked to tell us, I told him, Norman, in this house we eat the old bread first. which is how my father spent the next 68 years of his life, 
with my mother, Evelyn, as opposed to my Aunt Toots. <laughs> By 1949, they were living on a farm near Twin Brooks. They had three kids, Janice, Jeannie, Judy. My mother always called me the third one of the first batch. <laughs> they had 17 cows that had to be milked morning and night. And at that point, my father came down with rheumatoid arthritis and spent six months bedridden. With all those kids and cows, that was inconvenient. Eventually, my dad went to Millbank and uh, saw a doctor there. And the doctor told him, you need to move to a high, dry climate. My mother only had a seventh grade education. My mother came down with rheumatoid, came down with scarlet fever and lost that whole year. The next year, when she went back to do seventh grade a second time, she was with kids who were a year younger than she was. It was a small school. I'm sure this was very hard on her ego. So, at the end of seventh grade, she quit school. She came here to Minneapolis and she got a job as the maid of all work for caring for the invalid wife of the man who drew the Red Rider comics. When my father came home with the news of what the doctor had told him in Millbank, my mother, for all her seventh grade education, had always had a favorite subject, and that was geography. So she pulled her tattered geography book off the bookshelf. She opened it to a map of Arizona. She pointed to Bisbee in the lower right-hand corner of the page. She said, that's high and dry. We are moving there. By the way, nobody ever argued with Evie Busk. If they did so, they did it at their own peril. So we moved to Bisbee, Arizona. And that's where I grew up. And that's where my three brothers and my baby sister were born. There were seven kids in our family. There were other families in town who had seven kids. There were the Angelaries at the top of Yuma Trail. They were Catholic. Everybody understood why there were so many Angelary kids. <laughs> there were the Petersons over on Navajo Trail. They were Mormon. Everybody understood why there were so many Peterson kids. And then there were the Busks of Yuma Trail. We were Congregationalists. Nobody could figure it out. <laughs> Occasionally, someone would be so indiscreet as to ask my mother that question, and she would immediately launch into a detailed explanation 
of which failed birth control device each of us was. <laughs> Nobody ever asked that question twice. And yes, there is a distinct resemblance between my mother, Ebby, and Joanna Brady's mother, Eleanor Lathrop Winfield. My Aunt Alice, my mother's older sister, one of them, asked me once, well, doesn't Ebby mind the way you portray her in those books? Actually, she did not. She told me once, I really like that Eleanor Lathrop. <laughs> She's the only character in fiction I ever met who really knows how the world works. <laughs> so we moved to Bisbee, Arizona. We bought the house on Yuma Trail. My father went to work as an underground miner while he was still so crippled up that he had to go up and down the ladders in the stoves. The miracle is my father, the, the, the doctor's prescription of a high dry climate worked. My father recovered his health completely and in his 80s, on a cruise to Australia, he was able to climb Ayers Rock. So it really did work. I grew up in Bisbee, Arizona. And in second grade, I had a life-changing experience. Instead of going to Mrs. Gilbert's class, and Mrs. Barker's class, I ended up in Mrs. Spangler's class. And over under the windows in her room were shelves of books. And if you finished your work early, you could go to those shelves and take a book back to your desk to read it. And it was among Mrs. Spangler's books where I discovered the Wizard, uh, Wizard of Oz books. Not just the one we know with Dorothy and the Ruby Slippers, but all those other wonderful Oz books as well. A lot of kids reading The Wizard of Oz are fascinated by the wizard behind the curtains. I was fascinated by Frank Baum hiding behind the words. And from the moment I realized that a living, breathing person put those words on paper. That's what I wanted to be, and that's what I wanted to do. A couple of years ago, I was being interviewed by a local Tucson TV station, and the cameraman turned out to be Mrs. Spangler's grandson. Guess who inherited all of her books? And it was so wonderful to have lived long enough to be able to tell Lucy Spangler's grandson what a huge impact his grandmother's classroom had on my life. <clears throat> when I got to high school, I came into high school after both of my older sisters had were we're out of school. 
One had married while she was still in high school, the other weeks after high school graduation. My mother wanted another result, so when I was going into Bisbee High, she said, I'll tell you what, if you will take seven solids, seven actual classes, no study halls, no Gibney classes, if you'll take seven solids, you won't have to do the kind of housework Janice and Jeannie had to do. Well, I'm smart but lazy. Given a choice between homework or housework, ha! Huh, no contest. And so my mother, with her seventh grade education, set me on an academic path that meant when I graduated from high school, I did so with a scholarship to the University of Arizona. Because I wanted to be a writer, I signed up to be an English major. And then in 1964, as a junior, when it was time to sign up for those upper division classes, I tried to enroll in the creative writing class. And the professor said, you're a girl. And I said, so? He said, girls become teachers or nurses. Boys become writers. And he wouldn't let me into his class. I thought all of my hopes and dreams had been snatched from my grasp. It took me years to figure out how fortunate I was to not have been allowed to enroll in that class. Because if I had, dealing with a professor who was predisposed to fail me, I probably would have failed and I might have lost the dream of becoming a writer entirely. Fortunately, I didn't get into the class. <laughs> and so, I did what I thought was the next best thing. I married a guy who was allowed in the class that was closed to me. <laughs> You have no idea how distressing it is when I say those words in a room of relative strangers and everybody bursts out laughing because you all know instantly what a bad idea that was. <laughs> and it took me 18 years to figure it out. My first husband imitated Faulkner and Hemingway primarily by drinking too much and writing too little. He never had anything published, but that didn't keep him from telling me in 1968, shortly after we married, there's only going to be one writer in our family, and I'm it. Well, actually, he was half right. There was only one writer. <laughs> in our family. But here's the thing. As a husband, my, my first spouse was a complete loss. From a writer's standpoint, however, the guy was a gold mine. 
And my second husband says that my first one was so bad that it's made my second husband's life perfect. <laughs> because my first husband set the bar so very low. <laughs> but here's something you should remember. If you have acquaintances or relatives who are embarking on the journey of becoming mystery writers, you need to be careful not to make them mad. <laughs> because we have our ways of getting even. Now, if you read the first of my five Walker family books, I actually have four series now, not, not three. If you've read the first Walker book, Hour of the Hunter, you may notice that um, the main character in that book is a woman who was not allowed in a creative writing class, so she became a teacher instead. I became a teacher. When I didn't like that, I became a librarian. I was a K through 12 librarian on the Tahana Adam Reservation for five years. So Diana Ladd, the lead character in Hour of the Hunter, is a teacher on the reservation, but she really wants to be a writer. Like me, she married a guy who was allowed in the creative writing program <laughs> that was closed to her. Her husband is dead at the beginning of the book. <laughs> and as for the crazed killer, he turns out to be a former professor of creative writing <laughs> from the University of Arizona. Way to go. My husband told me once, he had his first drink when he was 12, and he had a blackout. By the time he was 15, he knew he was an alcoholic. It would have been nice if he had mentioned that to me. People did mention it to me, actually. My parents did. I brought him home to introduce my new boyfriend to my parents. And they said, this guy's a, a raging alcoholic. And I said, oh, what do you know? You're just teetotalers. And then I spent the next 18 years trying to prove them wrong. They were not wrong. He promised me that uh, when we had kids, he would stop drinking. And I had some reason to believe that was true. His father, Herman, went away to World War II drunk, which may explain why he joined the, the Navy even though he couldn't swim a stroke. And he had two separate ships shot out from under him in the Pacific. And he was in the water in a life jacket when a dollar bill came floating across the water. And he grabbed that dollar bill 
hung onto it, and carried it in his wallet until he died in March of 1983. But Herman always told me he went away to World War II drunk. He came back sober. He never went to meetings, but he never had another drink either. So he told me, don't worry about Jerry. When he's, when he's ready to shape up, he will. And so I thought that was true. In December of 1972, we were expecting our first baby. We lived 30 miles from town, two miles off the highway, seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. No cell phones in those days, ladies and gentlemen. So my husband drove me to the hospital and dropped me off. I had the baby. Three and a half days later, he came back to pick us up. And he was drunk. He had been on a three and a half day bender. And I was faced with this terrible choice. Do I have him hold the baby? There were no infant car seats back then. Or do I have him drive the car? I opted for him to hold the baby. So I drove myself home from the hospital. And by the time we got to the house on the hill, I was pissed. And I said, you know, you said when we had kids, you would stop drinking. And he said, I said, look, the baby is here. So he said, OK. He went into the house. He took his booze bottles off the kitchen counter and poured them down the sink. And then we lived through five days of DTs. Five days of not being able to sleep, not being able to turn off the lights because the bugs crawled on him. Five days of him playing countless games of chess at the dining room table with invisible people I couldn't see. And at one point, he wanted me to put the baby in the car and go down, drive with him down to the water hole so he could show us the FBI agents who were listening to us from a listening station down there in the desert. The whole time all of this was happening, I thought, okay, I can be strong because he's keeping his promise. And then three weeks later, some of his drinking buddies showed up they were outside by the pickup. I was in the living room, and I heard the pop of that beer can all the way in the house. And we were off and running again. In the course of the next eight years, he was hospitalized nine times for chronic alcoholism. In 1980, he showed up at my six-year-old son's t-ball game so drunk at five o'clock in the afternoon that he crawled on his hands and knees from the bleachers back to the car. And it was during that walk with my kids, their friends, and their friends' parents 
when I finally realized that if 18 years of loving him hadn't fixed him, I had to do something to save my children and save myself. So I got a divorce. And then, every Saturday morning, he started showing up on my doorstep saying, well, you said in sickness and in health, this is sickness, you need to take me back. I didn't divorce him because I stopped loving him. I divorced him to save my life. And I knew that if I stayed around Phoenix, he was going to wear me down and I would take him back. And so the kids and I loaded all of our worldly possessions into a U-Haul trailer. We hooked it up to my 78 Cutlass Supreme Brome that he said I never should have bought and would never be able to pay for. And we did an adventure in moving. We moved from Phoenix to Seattle. As we were getting ready to pull away from the house, the neighbor, Bonnie, came across the street and said, do you have a map? And my daughter was uh, eight. And she said, oh, you only need to know two streets to get from Phoenix to Seattle, I-10 and I-5. <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved to Seattle in 1981. In 1982, in March, it suddenly occurred to me that I was divorced. I had already lost my family. If I wanted to be a writer, what did I have to lose? And so in March of 1982, I sat down to write my first novel. My first novel never sold to anyone. My second novel sold to the second editor who saw it which means that based on the first book, getting published is impossible, and based on the second book, getting published is easy. The truth is somewhere in the middle. In May of 1982, my husband, my former husband, was working construction in Phoenix, and he broke his wrist. It was an on-the-job injury, covered by workman's comp. So he had money coming in. His mother paid the utilities. This was the house that had once belonged to her mother. It belonged to Mary Grandma now. He had a rope over his head. He didn't have to pay to keep the lights on, and so he drank from May to November. And then in November, Mary Grandma called him up and said, I have a surprise. I just got my ticket. I'm coming down to Phoenix so we can spend Thanksgiving together. He decided to sober up for her visit without taking into consideration that he had been drinking steadily ever since May. 
They had Thanksgiving dinner together. A few hours later, a Tempe police officer found him lying in the middle of the street. The initial assumption was that he had, was a victim of a hit and run. Instead, he had simply gone into DTs. He was hospitalized with no liver or kidney function, and he died a little over a month later. Mary, Grandma, and my mother had something in common, seventh grade educations. With her seventh grade education from Summit, South Dakota, my mother could still whip out New York Times crossword puzzles well into her 90s. But Mary Grandma didn't have the same kind of gumption my mother had. And so she was there in Scottsdale with my former husband, her son, and the doctors were just running her ragged. And she called me up and asked me, would I please speak to the doctors? He's dying. Words come through the line and hammer home, despite the doctor's cloying, unctuous tone. He's dying. I thought my tears exhausted years ago, and yet it hurts. Oh God, how much it hurts. He's dying. This is what I wanted when I thought a widow's garb would suit me better than a court's decree. He's dying. Should I go to him or stay away? What right have I to be there now? He's dying. I'll go. She called me on Christmas Day. I flew down to Phoenix. I spent the next several days with her and with him at the hospital. On New Year's Eve, I took her out for an early dinner, the blue plate special at um, a diner that no longer exists. We were back at the hospital by 7.30 or 8, and this is what happened. We keep a vigil by his midnight bed. His mother and his former wife, grieving for the man we loved and lost. It's harder for his mother than for me. I've already known the sting of loss. She's only now begun to see. She cannot win. The hours creep by. All stories are expended, yet we need some sound to hold the night at bay. Please sing, his mother asks me. And I do. It is a serenade of love, of songs we knew and treasured through the years, from body barroom ditties <coughs> to sweet hymns. The hours creep by. I sing a line, we hold his hands. I sing a line and wait to see if he will breathe again. 
He doesn't. It's over. <coughs> Amen. <sighs> After he died, I went back to Seattle and I had to get out all those documents you must present when someone dies. Birth certificates, divorce decree, all of that stuff. And in among those documents in the strong box were bits of poetry I had started writing way back in 1968. At the time I was writing those bits and pieces of poetry, he was passed out cold in his recliner. And because I wasn't supposed to be a writer, I hid the poetry away. He never saw any of it. But when I saw it after he died, I discovered at the time I thought I was being true to my uh, art. I didn't think the poetry had anything to do with me personally. But when I read it in January of 1983, I saw that I had been being a writer and struggling with the central issues of my life with words. After the fire, which you can't buy here tonight, is the story of that journey. And the title poem goes like this. I have touched the fire. It burned me, but I knew I lived. It seared me, but it made me whole. He called me. I went gladly, though I saw the rocks fell laughing through the singeing air. I have known the fire. I'll live with nothing rather than with less. The flame is out. There's nothing left but ash. Here's the thing. If I hadn't lived through that time, I wouldn't be the person I am today. If I hadn't survived the tough times, I wouldn't appreciate the good ones. Yes. When I started writing Beaumont, sure enough, he did the kind of drinking I had lived with all those years. And I thought it was just a piece of stage business. It was something for him to do when he wasn't at work. And then four books into the series, a woman came to me at a book signing and said, you know, Bo drinks every day. <laughs> he has a drink of choice. It's starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? <laughs> and I said, you know, these are books. But six other people asked me that same question. And I realized the author was the last one to figure out that Bo really did have a problem. So that was book four. Book seven, he has his first blackout that he can't dodge. Book number eight, he's in treatment. Second watch, Beaumont 21. There have been a lot more books with him sober than with him drinking. 
but I still have people who tell me they liked him better when he was drunk. <laughs> I worry about them. <laughs> but do you know, there's a guy named Rob in Texas. I met him at a book signing in Austin. He was standing in line to have the book signed, and he was grinning at me. Now, as an author, I'm wary when I'm doing book signings because almost every book signing has at least one person who's a complete nutcase. <laughs> I don't see anyone like that here tonight. <laughs> there was the signing north of Everett where a guy came waltzing up to the desk saying, are you the lady who writes the murder mysteries? And I said, yes. He said, I've just been acquitted of murdering seven people. Do you want to write my book? <laughs> no, thank you. So I could see this guy standing there smiling at me. And I kept worrying about him. But then when he got up in front of me, I could see he was pushing a little girl in a stroller. She was maybe three, two, three years old. And he said, hi, my name's Rob. I first started reading your books when I was in junior high at Rose Hill Junior High in Redmond, Washington. And as soon as I read my first Beaumont book, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. He graduated from high school. He enrolled in the Army. The whole time he was in the Army, he served as an MP. When he got out of the Army, he was a raging alcoholic, but he still wanted to be a cop. He got hired by a small jurisdiction in Central Texas. They sent him to the police academy. On the day he graduated from the academy, he realized that if he was ever going to be the kind of cop J.P. Beaumont is, he had to get sober. So he went straight from the academy to treatment. And he is now the police chief in that little jurisdiction. All because of a fictional character named J.P. Beaumont. But then she introduced me, he introduced me to his daughter. He said, this is my daughter. Her name is Morgan. My wife wouldn't let me name her JP. <laughs> I wrote nine Beaumont books in a row, and I was getting tired of him and I was ready to knock him off. <laughs> My editor said, oh, write something else. So I wrote the first Walker family book. And when I went back to write about Bo, it was fun again. So he said, why don't you come up with another character and you can sort of swing back and forth between those. And that's where Joanna Brady came from. I'm tall. I made Joanna Brady short. So when I write about her, I have to see the world through her perspective. I know things 
about Joanna Brady's, the top of Joanna Brady's refrigerator that she will never know. <laughs> I wanted to set her, set those books in southeastern Arizona because writing about Bo, a native Seattleite in a city where I'd lived for less than two years, was really hard work. And writing through a male point of view was hard work, too. So that's where Joanna Brady came from. So over the next several years, I would swing back and forth between those characters, among those three sets of characters. But then by 1999, I was tired of all of them. <laughs> So I was whining on the phone to my editor, and she said, well, no problem. Write something else then. New character, old character. Set it wherever you like. Just have it here by the 1st of January, and we'll publish it <laughs> as an original paperback. So I said, oh, OK. It was May. That seemed doable. May passed, June and July passed, August and September passed. Suddenly, it was the middle of October, and I was sitting in the house in Tucson with no idea what that book was going to be about. This is called Writer's Block. When I have Writer's Block, I watch the news. So that day, I watched the new news. My favorite newscaster, Patty Weiss, was on TV. Patty went to work for Channel 4 when she was still in college. By then, she was in her early 50s. She was a media icon around Tucson. So I watched her on the new news. The 5 o'clock news came around. Patty Weiss was nowhere to be found. It turned out, between the new news and the 5 o'clock news, her new 35-year-old news director told her she was too old to be on the anchor desk and escorted her from the building. Do not make mystery writers mad. <laughs> Within minutes, Allie Reynolds was being yanked from her news anchor desk in LA. This is Allie Reynolds number 11. Clawback is the story of a Ponzi scheme. It grew out of our my husband and I being built out of $500,000 in a Ponzi scheme. I earned it back by writing this book. <laughs> but that's why the dedication to this book says, for all the people who gave me 500,000 reasons for writing this book, whoever you are, you know who you are. Thank you.
That wraps up our Galaxy Library event with J.A. Jance in Dakota County. Make sure to catch our last Club Book event of the season with Forrest Pritchard at 7 p.m. Tuesday, April 26th at Stillwater Public Library. Forrest Pritchard is a seventh generation farmer and New York Times bestselling memoirist. He is one of the nation's foremost champions of organic and sustainable farming practices. Club Book is pleased to host Pritchard in Stillwater in conjunction with the 2016 St. Croix Valley Big Read, The Grapes of Wrath. Meet Forrest Pritchard, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Aroundtown Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.